0: The Colloquium on Violence and Religion was formed in 1991 by a group of scholars from around the world interested in pursuing the many implications of the work of René Girard. Each year, the colloquium holds a conference at which scholars and other interested members of the colloquium present the fruits of their research in a wide range of fields. Professor René Girard. I'm going to, to go back to the ground now and talk to you about the mimetic theory. I'm going to do something on reciprocity. Because have you noticed that all human relations are absolutely reciprocal? The worst, like the best. And what is it? It's imitation. Imitation, if someone does something kind to you, you do the same. You're compelled to do the same. Because if you don't, something is wrong. Therefore, what do you do? You imitate them. But if they stop being mean or turning their back upon you, What do you do? You turn their back, your back too. And most of the time they don't see it since their back is already turned. But usually you manage to make it known to them that you understand how they feel about you and that you feel the same. Which means you add a tiny bit of uh, disagreeableness to the existing disagreeableness as you see it. But this little something added is going to look to your partner as an enormous provocation As a declaration of war, then your relations are going to go from bad to worse. But whether you exchange compliments, nicenesses, greetings, or insinuations, indifference, meanness, bullets, it's always an exchange. And you always give to the other guy what he's giving to you. Or you try to. And that's reciprocity. But is it not? What could it be? You know, even the word reciprocity is a little bit mysterious because it probably refers to the tide, to the back and forth movement of the tide, which is a strange way of referring to human relations, you will say. But if you look at animals, animals are not having reciprocal relations. Or they are not having reciprocal relations. And as a matter of fact, they, they never look at each other. If you look at animals, you will know uh, Kipling, you know, Rudyard Kipling, who wrote about animals, of course, in the Jungle Book, which is not very popular today because it's not politically correct. It's imperialistic and all sorts of things, which are bad. So people don't read it anymore. Anyway, he has that myth, which is a very anthropocentric myth, that animals cannot sustain the look of man. You know, Mowgli, in the Jungle Book, looks at the wolves, And they have to move away. And it's true. If you look an animal in the eyes, you will see that very quickly his eyes will wander away. But I don't think it's for the reason. For Kipling, it meant that man is so superior, you know, that animals cannot stand the look of man. I think this is pure myth, of course. But to an animal, the look of a man means absolutely nothing. And he's not going to eat your eyes anyway. Therefore, he is looking away. Because it does not interest him in the slightest, you see. And the the, the explanation, in a way, is the opposite of that of Kipling. Even though the observation is very true. But I'm not going to talk about reciprocity now, because I promised to Sandy not to do that. But I'm going to do. I'm going to do another one of these messy introductions. <laughs> in theory. I've already given about twelve or thirteen that cover, and one more will be all right. Sandy already defined uh, uh, the, mimetic, the main thing about the mimetic theory is that, you know, imitation has always played an enormous role in the thinking of man. And after all, it's extremely important in the Bible and in the Gospels. The imitation of uh, Jesus is absolutely essential, but imitation is so unpopular today that in many churches they don't say imitating Jesus, they say following. But what does following mean if not imitating? You see what I mean? Anyway, imitation is all over the place. Imitation is essential in the greatest of all philosophers, Plato. Aristotle defined man as the most, which is a very profound definition and still valid today, the most mimetic of all animals, you know? But at the same time, all the theoreticians of imitation including at the end of the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, there was a period where imitation explained everything. In France, there was someone named Gabriel Tard, who is revived a little bit from time to time. But these people are not interested. They take all the drama out of imitation. How could there be drama in imitation? They don't see that imitation is the main source of violence in man. Who does that? When you say imitation, everybody thinks of being sheepish, gregarious, following people, not true at all. It is true in many instances, of course. but what is true too is that imitation does not affect merely your gestures, your words or your ideas. you imitate them from other people, you know that, but you also imitate desires. you see, and the only people who really know that are great writers. Shakespeare talks about nothing else. That's why I fell in love with Shakespeare in uh, Buffalo. Most of the first comedies of Shakespeare begin with two young friends, sometimes four, and as in a of ice dream. And they have been friends since early infancy. And they are friends, they say so themselves, because they do, they like everything alike. They like the same books, they like the same everything, you know. And then suddenly, what happens? Because they like everything, they fall in love with the same girl. And uh, all hell breaks loose. It's so important in Shakespeare. And it comes back at the end of his life in the the greatest of these plays is The Winter's Tale, which is very mysterious because it's an even greater play on jealousy, in my view, than Othello. I don't want to offend Sandy, but um, he loves The Winter's Tale, too. But it comes after Othello. And it's about the insane jealousy of a man for his best friend, you know. There are only two great writers who understand that to the same extent as uh, uh, Shakespeare. And uh, one is Dostoevsky. And I think the other one is Dante, even though that might be questionable. But if you love the same thing as your best friend, he becomes your best enemy, of course. And in Shakespeare the number of lines which express this mystery of the conflation of the greatest affection for your friend and the greatest jealousy for the man who is in love with the same thing, it's tremendous. And theory, the theory of man should assimilate this insight. It does not. I'm a Darwinist, you know, I believe in uh, natural selection. And there is a famous man today who is Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins said we have to explain culture, too, by evolution theory. And he invented what he calls the memes, M-E-M-E-S, or memes, you know? And he calls them units of imitation. And he didn't do that theory, but immediately after that, people picked it up, and there are many evolutionists uh, Theoreticians today who discuss culture in terms of mimetics, you see, and have been reading books lately, but they haven't learned that mimesis, Greek word for imitation, imitation, is potentially conflictual, is obviously the greatest source of conflict between nations. They are rivals for the area which belongs to both or which moves. You know, nationalism is about the territory Ukraine, which the next country possesses. You invent it if it doesn't exist. But we don't like to know that. And we cover up the fact that we desire the same thing for the same reason under a pretense of different ideas. Most conflicts of ideas, they can be important, but when people have real ideas and believe in them, they usually argue quite uh, peacefully, but very often conflicts of ideas are a cover for the rivalry of desire because it's very humiliating for all of us to understand when we are rivals that we owe our desire, which is supposed to be mostly ours, to other people. But of course, advertisers know that very well, and they are never trying to show you that a product is really better than the next product. They are trying to show you always that a product is desired by the most desirable people. And they show you beautiful people playing on the sand, on a beautiful beach, and using their soft drink or whatever it is. And because you want to be like these people, you're going to drink that soft drink. You're going to use that soft drink in a way as a kind of sacrament. And you uh, say, maybe if I drink that something, I look a little more like these people on the beach than I really do. Because uh, deep down, I know that I don't look at all the way they, they, they do. You say, where does it all begin? I think that the mimetic theory has to be inscribed in evolutionary theory. We know that animals already have mimetic rivalry. And that mimetic rivalry in animals is the source of what uh, biologists today call their culture. When two animals don't know each other, desire the same female, the same uh, territory, but they never fight to the finish. They fight moderately, and the weaker animal knows his weakness, and the stronger animal always fails his life. The stronger becomes the dominant animal, and the other one, the dominated animal. Anyway, the solution to this Rivalry among animals is called dominance patterns. But we know that men fight to the finish. They even fight beyond the finish. Because if you fight to the death with someone in an archaic culture, it's not the end of it. The victim's brother will pick up the fight and kill the murderer. And then the brother the second victim will keep up the fight and so forth. That's what we call the blood feud. And the blood feud, in a way, is already a religion of violence. It transcends individuals. It transcends time. It may transcend uh, space, you know, because if your relatives go on endlessly picking up the fight with the last murderer, a society is sure to end right there. That is why revenge is not a cultural institution. Revenge is pretty much universal if you start looking at archaic culture. But all cultures have to prohibit it. If they didn't, they would be doomed from the start. So there you have a contradiction in man. The question is, how can man form societies, long-term associations on the basis of that form of rivalry, which is endless, which goes on forever. And what does it mean? Should we speak of evil and so on? No, no. And there, I think we have to use a scientific language. It just means that you cannot stop imitating the violence of your opponent any more than you can stop imitating the kindness. Kindness escalates and turns into what we call love, which obviously animals don't have. But it escalates the other way, too. And it turns into deadly violence, which animals don't have either. And there you have two characteristics of man, which you can define practically, I think, empirically. And I think it's very important. And you can show that you cannot deal with human culture as you deal with animal culture, because it begins with a crisis. All communities have crisis. And maybe the crisis of that type are a special human feature, you know, something about man, man is a crisis at all. And in a way, I think that the real problem with our social sciences is that they've never learned that. In other words, social sciences confuse the science of man with what human beings say about the order of their community. If you a sociologist, you study the order according to the people, who talk about their own culture. If you're a psychologist, you talk about the self according to what the self is telling you. You know, but the question is, when a society gets into a serious crisis, who is in charge? Very often, the government is no longer in charge. None of the rules apply. What is a crisis? You see, social science cannot, in a way, define crisis there is a great political scientist who first said that, who is fairly unpopular, because he was not really a Nazi, but um, nevertheless, he behaved like a Nazi for quite a while. He, his name is Carl Schmidt, you know, and he said a social science should first be the science of crisis. It's very easy to define who the government is where, you know. But in most societies, the government is not the most important authority. And you have to study a crisis in order to see who is in charge there, who is fighting whom, you know, what's really going on. And if you listen to the government, of course, you listen to their propaganda. Now, in a way, the mimetic theory would like to do that because the mimetic theory necessarily starts with crisis. The extra-mimetic power of man, Aristotle is right in saying man is the most mimetic of all animals. Because we know very well that the great apes are next to us. They are more mimetic than other animals. They are so mimetic that we laugh at them, just as we laugh at ourselves. But we are obviously much more mimetic than they are. And therefore, it must be out of that crisis, what must have happened at the time of harmonization, on hundreds of thousands of years maybe, is that dominance patterns disappeared. Since animals have a culture now, to talk about the process of harmonization, the beginning of man, it's not enough to talk about biological changes. You have to talk about cultural changes because we know that the last stages of, evolution, of the evolution of man are both cultural and physical. For instance, the infant, the, the, the human infant, needs so much care for so many years that it is impossible to think humanity could develop without any culture, in other words, without any taboos on violence, on violence inside the family. We know that the male would not tolerate being separated from the female for as long as it is necessary in a human family for the uh, education of the uh, uh, young children. Therefore, there must be a mix between the two. Therefore, we have to find mechanisms which are at the same time part of culture and which at the same time should be quite mechanical, happen spontaneously because no man was capable of inventing them. And I think that religion goes back that far, that the the incredible power that religion has over us must be there already at the beginning of man. And we have have to find a way to talk about religion in a scientific way, which will not be either anti-religious, as it is today, nor pro-religious in a spiritualist way, which is completely out of order at that time. Therefore, the discussion, you know, between the creationist and the uh, evolutionist, and even between the spiritualist and the materialist, All these things today are are becoming outmoded, I think. The question is to find ways to talk about what happens when these dominance patterns disappear and when human culture, a human type of culture, is beginning to take over. And how can we know about that? Well, I think we have to look at the structure of religion. And... Today, again, you know, when, you, when people discuss about religion or against religion, they tell you that religion is a view of the world, you know. And uh, the scientists, most scientists, are stuck with that idea that religion is an outdated view of the world. It's a kind of fanciful view of the world because these people didn't know how to explain better the mysteries of the universe, But if you look at an archaic society, they couldn't care less for the mysteries of the universe. They never talk about them. They don't suspect there are mysteries of the universe. You have to be incredibly sophisticated to look at the starry night, you know, and so forth. That's the way the 19th century saw the beginning of religion. They look at the stars, you know, and they invent God. Not true at all. They have more serious problems to contend with, you know, which I think one of them was the problem not only of the outside world, of the forces of nature, disease and so forth, animals cope with that, but with violence, which must get worse and worse as people get closer and closer to humanity. Therefore, at the very moment when man needs most protection against his own violence, suddenly there is no more if the dominance patterns disappear. And then what can happen? In order to find out, I think, you have to observe the most ancient religions we know, which are archaic religions, these religions that don't care at all for the mysteries of the universe and are divided into three parts, really. Uh, the, The first one is prohibitions, what you shouldn't do, never, sometimes some exceptions. The second part is sacrifice, which is very strange. Because in some ways, sacrifice is the opposite of prohibition. Prohibitions forbid violence, and sacrifice requires of you one certain violent action, which is the killing of a victim. Many theologians and people, you know, who are very politically correct, try to say that uh, sacrifice, the violent part, may not be the essential part. That it's only incidental if you're sending an animal to the god, What can you do after that? You cannot keep this animal in the flock. You have to get rid of it somehow, discreetly. And what else to do but to kill that animal? It's not true. Violence is essential in sacrifice. And wherever you have very important texts on sacrifice, they tell you about this essential nature of violence, in particular in India, where we have texts going back very far, and we can see that violence is essential. So you have that mystery of religious institutions, which are, at the same time, against violence, prohibitions. Prohibition has only one object. If you look carefully, it's a prohibition of violence inside the community. Violence outside the community, it's not really violence. You can do anything you want. It doesn't matter. But inside the community, you must not touch anyone. And so many people, you know, feel it's very smart and very chic to denigrate prohibitions in order to denigrate ours, which are completely rational. But if you look at archaic prohibition, they are rational too. The the only thing is that sometimes archaic people have a conception of violence which is just empirically false. You know, they are aware that the more people are alike, the more they fight. And this is the reason why so many archaic cultures are against twins. There are many archaic cultures who understand very well that twins have nothing to do with violence, and they pay no attention to twins any more than we do. But there are many archaic cultures that will not tolerate twins to stay within the community. They fear that if they allow that, violence will spread, you know, like wildfire and destroy the whole community. Therefore, they don't kill twins out of some meanness of spirit or some absurdity. They think that twins, as soon as they are born, have something to do with violence. That's why they often think that the mother has been misbehaving, has been, in other words, transgressing prohibitions against violence. And if you transgress prohibitions against violence, you'll have twins. In other words, you'll produce violence. Many communities, I repeat, understand it's not true in the case of biological twins, but many don't. And as a result, sometimes they will get rid of only one twins, which really shows that it's a similarity of twins which uh, bothers them. So what is sacrifice? Well, in order to know what sacrifice is, I think you must go to the third branch of primitive religion, which is myth. You know, some people will say, well, myth has something to do with mysteries of the universe. Well, because we are thinking of Greek myths. And Greek myths, we didn't receive them as religious myths. They were already philosophized. They come through the philosophers, you know, and they are contaminated with philosophical thinking, which is fine and very interesting, but which has little to do with archaic religion. If you look at an archaic myth, an archaic myth does only one thing. It tells you how a religion was born. a sacrificial cult and prohibitions. That's all. And it was born, of course, in violence, in a type of crisis which looks very much like the one I said must have happened when dominance patterns disappeared. People get into a circle of violence, more and more violence. The whole community goes haywire, you know. Many myths try to disguise that behind natural disasters and so forth. But one very common theme at the beginning of myth is the plague. And we know very well that in archaic societies, they don't distinguish the plague as a disease. You know, this happened only in the 16th century. The plague is primarily violence, people killing each other. And an epidemic of plague was conceived as people killing each other. If you look at the description in Oedipus the King, you will see that it's really there. And I think that the plague or the flood or whatever... Or very often, you know, it's sacrifice that goes wild. There is a monster in the community. He wants more and more victims, you know. And uh, he, as he gets more and more victims, of course, sacrifice disappears as a source of peace. It becomes violence itself. It, uh, it joins up with the violence of the community that normally it should fight. Therefore, the whole community goes haywire, you know. And you have a crisis that seems to be impossible to cure. Because the more you go, the more violence you have. But if you look at all myths, you will see that after this crisis is described, the focus shifts from the community to a single character. And this single character is always ultimately accused of being responsible for the whole crisis. And here again, I always mention Oedipus at this point because it's a Greek play, and therefore the foundational myth people know best. Oedipus, who is looking for a solution to the plague, the people decide he is the problem and not the solution, that he is the plague, because he's their king, which is legitimate. Today, that's why there are so many interpretations of the Oedipus tragedy in political terms. No doubt they are tired of their king, just as the people in the village of Job are tired of Job. And they are about to get rid of Oedipus. But in the case of Oedipus, we're in an archaic community, and we find a reason for it. There is a God who's mad at him, and who's decided he's responsible for that plague epidemic. In other words, he's brought the violence to the community, and he must be killed or cast out. We are in a very polite myth, so we don't really kill Oedipus, but we expel him, and he blinds himself, therefore he punishes himself. But anyway, In all myth, you have a crisis at the beginning, which gets worse and worse, until suddenly it comes to a head, so to speak, in a single victim. And that single victim ultimately is killed very often by the whole people together, which is pretty strange, you would say. In the Oedipus myth, there is a kind of trial, of course, and so forth, Mm -hmm. but this is highly civilized. If you look at really archaic myth, You will see that very myth where you have that crisis at the beginning, it's always there, end up with actual legion. Australian myth, for instance, most of them, you have, it's not described, of course, but it's a whole community that rushes against the culprit and kills it. Very often it's animals. Very often it's animals that are capable of charging collectively. The Blackfoot Indian have a lynching myth where it's the buffaloes who lynch either some kind of man or another buffalo. But in Australia, which couldn't be influenced by the Blackfoot Indian, it's the kangaroos who kill another kangaroo, who becomes the god kangaroo. And all over Africa, you have lynching myths. Now, the scholars don't want to talk about these lynching myths. Or to wonder why so many lynching men. And even in Greece, huh, our dear civilized Greece, most civilized country in the world, according to the West, you know, and you should speak ill of the Greeks. The most famous mythological cycle, Dionysus, counts many episodes. They all end with a lynching. Have you seen a classical scholar wonder why it's always a lynching? That would be a decent question. You see what I mean? You don't ask questions about violence. You push it under the rug, literally. That's what Western society has done, especially since the Enlightenment, because the Greeks cannot do any wrong, and today we believe that texts are violent, but only texts. And, of course, our contemporaries are violent. But there is no violence before our contemporaries, and in particular among the Greeks. So some great Western thinkers have reacted against that. One of them was Nietzsche. But Nietzsche, in a way, embraced this violence, you know. He made it his own. He said it's better than uh, the peace that was his own world at the time. And he went mad. But any average Greek who would have seen Dionysus embraced by Nietzsche could have foreseen that Nietzsche was going to madness. Because this lynching, mania, you know the word mania, comes from the Greeks and the Dionysus cult. It means homicidal mania. And it refers to that moment in the myth and in the sacrifice. Because if you look at the Dionysiac sacrifice, they look exactly like the myth. They have to take very small animals so that the faithful will be able to tear this animal apart and eat it alive. That's called homophagia and so forth. Originally, it's cannibalism. But the Dionysiac religion is still shaped after that. It's the most incredible thing. And it's the most popular with our modern thinkers who don't seem to realize what they are talking about at the same time, you see. But I think it's very, very important Because why would that lynching act be regarded as something which can bring peace as well as prohibitions? You see? And I think it's possible to find out. I think you have a community which is in a very serious crisis and which is mimetically mad, you know, where people are imitating uh, each other's violence, you know, very much. And they are fighting about objects when you are fighting mimetically for the same object of desire, you cannot be reconciled. But sooner or later, this object will be destroyed, and so forth, and only antagonists will be left. And when you're fighting the same antagonist mimetically, you are immediately reconciled. You form an alliance against people can cannot desire together the same object, but they can hate together. As a matter of fact, the greatest Greek tragic, if you read the, the trilogy of Aeschylus, in the last play, the humanities, the, god, the goddess Athena, and the humanities say, we must give up vengeance, and we can do it anyway, because now we have an outside enemy, the Persians, Aeschylus himself was a soldier in the first Persian uh, wars of Athens when Athens repelled uh, Persia. And more or less, Aeschylus says the Athenian Empire would be great because instead of resorting to vengeance, which was some kind of tribal vengeance, we move against the enemy from outside. From now on, we are a nation, and we have only enemies from outside. In the conclusion of the humanities, this is very clear. And this should be read, in a way, as a foundation of the Athenian um, empire. So, what do we see there? Why that single victim? How could a crisis be reduced to a single victim? Because ultimately, if you have that imitation, that contagion of antagonism, There will be only a few victims left, a few victims, then finally one. And the entire community will fight that one. And when they do kill that only enemy, of course, there is no enemy left in the community, and peace returns. That is the reason, I believe, why the victim becomes the god. The victim is regarded not only as very bad, very dangerous, because it made us fight. And very good, because it reconciled us. You know? So ultimately, I think that single victim is the origin of the archaic gods, who are always very violent and very peaceful when they want to be. But they're always both at the same time. So this would be the origin of archaic religion. I think that the anthropologist of the period 1850-1950, were very close to discovering that. I think they just didn't dare say that violence conquered by sacrifice might be the origin of religion and of culture as a whole. Because what is sacrifice? Ritual sacrifice now. If human communities have in their back an experience like the one I just described, At first, they are very happy, they all reconcile, they all kiss each other, they love each other. But men are men. And they will become rivals again. And then what will people do? They will remember that in the past, there was that single victim that reconciled them. And they will try to do it again. With substitute victims. And ritual sacrifice, in my view, is nothing else. Anthropologists, you know, in 1895, who talk to archaic people, they all talk in the same way about their sacrifices. They were given to us by a God. And this God gave them to us in order to keep peace among us. Peace and the gods are always mentioned. And it's true. And the proof that they want to repeat a phenomenon of that type which is a crowd phenomenon, is what happens at the beginning of sacrifice, which is the problem that the old anthropology could never solve. In many communities, especially in Africa, but in other areas, when people have trouble among themselves, sacrifice. If you look at the places where sacrifice is located in archaic community, you will see that it's always where there is a most trouble. Rites of passage, for instance, youth, Dangerous youth, male youth. Rites of passage are a bunch of sacrifices, really, and ordeals which come from the crisis I was talking about. But sacrifice is really nothing but the most accurate repetition of the spontaneous phenomenon I have described before. This phenomenon, we still know about it. We have a name for it. We call it a scapegoat phenomenon. The word scapegoat comes from a ritual in the Bible. But when we say scapegoat phenomenon, we don't think about that ritual at all. We think about an entire group, maybe a small group like a family, maybe a big group, uh, maybe, uh, you know, that get united against an innocent victim. But when those people do that, they believe that the victim is guilty. They persuade each other that the victim is guilty. There would be no scapegoat phenomenon if there were no conviction that the victim is guilty. And the most essential thing when you look at myth, like the parasite and incest of Oedipus, is that Oedipus is supposed to be guilty. He himself doesn't know about it, but he's guilty. Mr. Freud, you know, thought that the invention of the parasite and incest in the Oedipus myth Was something unique, marvelous, a stroke of genius. It's not true at all. You have parasite and incest everywhere in mythology. And today, when a crowd, you know, a really, uh, a little bit retarded crowd, gets in serious trouble, they always find parasite and incest around, and they kill in that name. In other words, today, we would still have a myth if we didn't have, if we were not the, the, the society we are. As a matter of fact, in the Middle Ages, they still had half formed myth, which we call witch hunt. What is a witch hunt? You call sometimes a woman, but sometimes also a man. You are in trouble. You have a crisis. You're looking for a culprit, And you usually find a lonely woman or something, and you accuse them of all sorts of crime. In other words, it's a scapegoat phenomenon. But the Oedipus myth is nothing else. And if we started to compare seriously witch hunt in countries where you still find it very commonly, what we call the witch hunt, with mythology, we would say it's exactly the same. But in mythology, they crystallize into something coherent, into a cult, a sacrificial cult. So the question is whether it's true or not. Now, the question is why we don't have these things anymore? of why in the Middle Ages they were only half-born, and then they were completely out. The amazing thing about the witch-hunt epidemics of the Middle Ages is not that they happened, it's that they were the last ones. We are the only society in the world that has done away completely with that sort of thing. That's why it's become unthinkable to us. But the Middle Ages are very important for this not because they are bad, not because Christianity is bad or this and that. No. Because it was a period where, I'm going to try to show you now to the end in a few minutes, the influence of the Bible was becoming so important that this sort of thing was becoming more and more impossible in our society. You're going to tell me it still happens. It's true. But we understand it. We never believe in the epiphany of the God. So what is the difference between Judaism and Christianity? It's very paradoxical, because if you look at Judaism and Christianity, or rather at the Bible and at the New Testament, what do you find? You find that there you have exactly the same sort of thing that I have been describing. The Lamb of God is a much nicer expression for exactly the same significance. But the Lamb is a sacrificial victim which says that Jesus has been killed by people for reasons which had nothing to do with him, ultimately, and that he was an innocent victim, that he was a kind of scapegoat. Here I give a lecture on the Joseph story. Who is Joseph? He's not a son like Oedipus. He's a brother. But unfortunately for him, he's 12 brothers. And they're all jealous of him. And what do they do? They sell him into slavery. At first, they wanted to kill him. They dip his tunic, you know, in blood to show to the father to say he's been devoured, and so forth. But anyway, what do they do? They scapegoat poor Joseph, you know. And this is so true that uh, J- Joseph ultimately puts them to scapegoat trial before forgiving all of them. Now look at these forms, you know. Some people tell you the storms are very violent. You know, you have a victim there that curses uh, uh, his uh, fellow citizens and so forth. But what is the situation? In probably half of the storms, you have the narrator who is surrounded by a crowd. And the crowd is moving in to close the circle. And the crowd is becoming more and more threatening. And the crowd is compared to bulls, to dogs, Or to other lynching animals. The narrator is the mythical hero on the point of being lynched, complaining about the lynching which is going to take place and calling to God to stop it. You see, but it's the same, same thing as in myth. Or take Job. Job presents himself in the dialogues, you know, the prologue is something different. As the darling of his community, he was in charge completely. He was a kind of dictator. And suddenly the entire community turned against him. Now they hate him and they find him guilty of all sorts of things as a delegate to three friends who are not friends at all, but in order to force him to convince as if he were a Soviet leader in the 1930s, you know? And that's the difference with Oedipus. Joe, protest, you know. He's not very happy with that. Then if you go to the prophets, the prophets, they tell some pretty serious news to people. They tell them that uh, if they continue in their ways, they are going to disappear. And they are very unpopular, and they are terribly mistreated. And the most autobiographical of the prophets is Jeremiah, who really shows himself as a quote-unquote scapegoat of his community. Then, ultimately, you have this incredible, these two chapters of the second Isaiah, you know, 52, 53, where you have description of the lynching of the suffering servant. The suffering servant is lynched for reasons which have nothing to do, as a matter of fact, the text tells us he was the sort of man that the people don't like, that crowds don't like. They want to get rid of them, you know, They, they want to destroy them. And then the Gospels are absolutely centered on a phenomenon of this type. So this is so true that the anthropologists of the end of the 19th and early 20th century, one of their main goals and open goals, it was the great anti-clerical period in Europe, you know, they were mostly English and French at the time. Then, What were they doing? They wanted to do the equivalent. They felt that... Uh, Darwin was marvelous because it was a great blow against religion. And said so "But we are going to try to explain the origin of religion. We are going to show that religion is only a bunch of myths. That the Bible is only a bunch of myths. And therefore, we're going to deal religion the last blow after Darwin, you know. And they were all racing, thinking that each one of them was going to write the final theory of religion. I think they were very close to it. Far from being like people today, you know, today it's a fashion to say that systems, methods are impossible. That if you're systematic, you're necessarily wrong. There is no great scientific discovery which is not systematic. Only systematic thinking works. Maybe it's impossible at some points, but we are always aiming at systematic theories. And I'm aiming at a systematic theory, of course. So, Were they right, these anthropologists, to think that the Bible and mythology is the same? They were right in the sense that they saw the structure, you know, that big crisis moving towards a single victim who is seen as responsible for the whole thing. But the difference is such, so plain, so evident that no one has seen it yet. And in a way, religious people are as guilty as the scientists. The scientists were naive in thinking they were going to reduce the Bible to a bunch of myth. They were completely wrong. But the Christians were fools not to trust the Bible enough and be scientific themselves and say, yeah, let's push that comparison to the end and see what there is behind it. And if you do that, you discover the truth, of course, is that all mythical heroes are guilty. Why are they guilty? Because the point of view on the event which they describe, which is the crisis plus its resolution. And they worship the whole thing because it was a solution for them, the return of peace. They worship it, but they believe in the scapegoating. When you have a scapegoat, you don't call him a scapegoat. You see he has committed parasite and incest. You see what I mean? In order to be able to talk about scapegoating the way we do, We have to understand it. And how do we understand it? Because the Bible tells us that these same victims are innocent. Joseph is innocent. The Bible tells you that his brothers are jealous. Job is innocent. There are a few sentences in *Oedipus the King that show that Sophocles had doubts about his own myth. But if he had changed the myth in Citus, he would have been lynched by the ground because it was a play given at the theater in front of the whole population. It was like a religious function. You see what I mean? And this was true of the suffering Solomon. And this is true of the gospel. And the gospels show it in a way more completely than any other text. Why? Because the thing which is so marvelous at the gospel is that they show you completely the creation of mythology. And the fact that... uh, The death of Jesus is a crowd phenomenon. And the most important text, in my view, is Peter's denial. Peter's denial, it's really foolish to say, Oh, Peter, uh, if I had been in Peter's place, I would have resisted better. No, Peter is the best of the apostles. So the Gospels want to show you something decisive in his denial. And the truth is that as soon as Peter gets into a crowd, that believes that Jesus is guilty, for a few seconds, he has to join the crowd. We are crowd joiners because we are terribly mimetic. That's why we have scapegoat religions. But the Gospels show you, Peter, in order to teach you not to do the same thing. The very fact that Peter's denial, when you think what it means, for the apostles, you know, all the scholars today tell you that uh, the guys have a bunch of crooked texts. which little, But if they weren't crooked texts, the first thing they would have done away with was Peter's denial, who was the head of the church. They didn't. Why? It tells you about men, the essential thing. Most of the time they fight together, but when it can't them they will all try to fight. And that's why they can be a society. And now the time has come to do something else. You see what I mean? So, in the Gospels and the, 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 the Bible, you have the same victims as in mythology, but they are seen from the point of view of the victim itself. All the people who joined with the victim. And in the Gospel, you can see that it happens, because at the time of Jesus' death, all the disciples scatters, no one is left on his side. In other words, what the Gospels tell you, it's a light from God that taught them the truth. They never learn by themselves. They are unable to learn by themselves. The Gospels are built exactly like a myth, with one exception, that a few people secede from the crowd to say, it's not true. Stop everything. It's too late. Stop everything. The victim is innocent, which never happens in a myth. A myth is based, the divinity of the God is based on his capacity to inflict evil at the same time. So, the Gospels and the Bibles are totally different. Conceptually, we've never been able to reach the truth. You know, it's the simplest truth in the world, and we are not able to reach it conceptually. It would seem, I think one single thinker did, who was Nietzsche. But Nietzsche was so perverse that he said, better be with the violent than with the peaceful. He said that Christianity was against sacrifice, against the necessary victims that a society should make in order to be healthy. And that's the whole theory of the extreme right still today. But Nietzsche, in a way, is better than all 19th century theologians because he understood He said, the death of Dionysus is justified. The victim is guilty in Dionysus. The death of Christ, unjustified. Therefore, it destroys the peace of humanity. And it's true, in a sense. We are in a position to talk about the essence of human community, where there is always some kind of violence in the back, which we would prefer to keep silent. Many people, when I say what I'm saying now, say, and so what? So what? Everything is at stake. Everything is at stake. I'm going to show you in one second by taking one example. One word about the Dreyfus case. We all know about the Dreyfus case in France at the end of the 19th century. It's not very good to have a Dreyfus case. But if you have people who are treated like Dreyfus by the judicial system, it's better to have a Dreyfus case than to have no Dreyfus case at all. Because it means that uh, the judicial error will be shown. But who was Dreyfus? He was a French officer. He was Jewish, favorite scapegoat of the culture. And he was accused, very specifically, of having written a document which was classified secret and had been sent to the Germans. And France was in a crisis. France knew that uh, the war the was not the end of it, that the Germans were stronger. France was worried about itself and about its army, especially. So it was nice the idea of having a good traitor there, you know, who would comfort people. So the majority of the nation believed in the guilt of Dreyfus, as you know, who was sent to the forced labor in uh, uh, French Korea. But after a while, some people began to have doubts. And these people are no revolutionists, you know, no leftists and so forth. One of them was the vice president of the Senate, very conservative man, and a very well-known politician. Another one is the colonel who knew uh, and they said it's not true. And Colonel Picard, who was the first to denounce specifically the situation, and to go to jail. But look at the Dreyfus case. What does it mean? The scapegoaters, who are they? They are the people who believed in Dreyfus' guilt. But they did really believe in Dreyfus' guilt. Therefore, they would not call Dreyfus a scapegoat. He was a justly condemned spy. You see? The people who started to use the word scapegoat well, the few people who rebelled against the situation and who said Dreyfus is a scapegoat because the word has been in the language with its modern meaning since the 17th century. And if you go up from society, find the Japanese, find the Japanese anthropologists who say, when we want to talk about scapegoats, Japanese, we have to use the Western words because we don't have them. We don't have them in that sense, in the demystifying sense. You see, we have them many words for the ritual action comparable to scapegoating, but no word which would mean the revelation of the truth behind the ritual, the demystification of the violent religion. And we have it, why? Because we have the Lamb of God. People should not say scapegoat, it would be much nicer and better to see all these victims are lambs of God, very literally because they are other Christ, they are Christ figures sometimes we say, because in a way they suffer from the crowd not be uh, uh, responsible for it. Which is an absolutely fascinating thing. Well, I think I'm going to leave you on that uh, Jewish uh, Christian note and uh, ask for your questions. After his lecture, Professor Girard answered questions from the audience. The microphone he was wearing did not pick up the questions, but in most cases, his answers indicate the nature of the question, and in every case, his responses were an extension of his formal presentation. The thing which is fascinating about the second Oedipus play is Oedipus of Colonus. And uh, Oedipus of Colonus is the arrival of Oedipus in the summer of Athens, which was the place of birth of the author, Sophocles. And Sophocles likes to think that Colonus, in a way, adopted Oedipus. But the second play is very different because instead of seeing the culprit the man guilty of parasite and an incest, we see the God. In other words, we see the transformation of the guilty victim to a good God because Oedipus was a minor divinity in Greece. He was a divinity of what? An archaic God is always the God of the law he transgresses before it exists in principle. He's a God of marriage. But many scholars, you know, say, well, the second Oedipus is very different from the first. It's not a great tragedy because Oedipus was very old, you know, and just couldn't be as tragic. I really think that he follows his own way. And it's the nice, Oedipus, who is the hero of Oedipus at Colonus, whereas it is the mean scapegoat who is the hero of uh, Oedipus the king. You see, so in the two plays, in a way, you have the whole uh, evolution of uh, a normal religion, archaic religion. In a tragic context, of course, which changes many things, makes many things more civilized. Oedipus seems to be the object of a real investigation of a real trial and so forth. But it's a form of lynching, you can be sure. The the archaic sacred must always contain that element of violence which makes it potent, which can turn into peace. If you look at sacred kings, who are sacred kings? You know, the first monarchies, I say the first, we are not sure, but we can be pretty sure. Who invented the monarchy? You know, no one knows. But a sacred king is a king who is selected as king and is in power for a while. And after a certain number of years, which varies, as a matter of fact, we don't know anything about it, that king is sacrificed, killed. Then we know there is an evolution, and later on the king is no longer sacrificed. A substitute for the king is sacrificed. Or an animal. But what does it mean that the king is sacrificed? I really think that at the beginning, you have the phenomenon I talked about. You have the killing of a victim, and the killing reconciles the community. As any crowd will be reconciled by its own violence, the tendency of that crowd is to worship the community, worship the victim. The victim that at the same time it fears greatly, and that's what an archaic God is. But then, when you have trouble, you're going to have a new victim And you know that you're going to sacrifice that victim. So if you believe in the thing, again, that victim becomes sacred even before he is killed. And if the victim is very smart, let's suppose all, this victim will become very powerful inside the community before dying. And what is the monarchy, kingship? It's just reliving the original phenomenon with the victim in charge until his death. So the sacred monarchy is a very strange institution. You have a king, and one fine day, you kill a king. And we know it wasn't really done, you know, because we have documents. As a matter of fact, behind the Oedipus myth, there might very well be a very old myth of a sacred monarchy. Because Oedipus is king, after all. Why is he king? Ultimately, because he committed parricide and Therefore, this is a secret key. So, if you kill the victim immediately after selecting that new victim, you have what we call sacrifice. If you wait and worship the victim alive and put the victim in charge of your community, you invent the monarchy. But I don't think human cultures invent anything ex nihilo, out of nothing. They always invent copying sacrifice. As a matter of fact, if you stop looking at institutions from that point of view, you become convinced that it has to be true, because sacrifice is present at the heart of all archaic institutions. So it's very weird, I admit But read anthropological literature. We are very lucky, you know, we don't have any archaic societies anymore. But between 1860, about, or even before, and uh, the end of archaic religions, we had anthropologists, most of them English, who are Jews of imperialism now, but who recorded religious institutions of the last archaic people in a manner which is incomparable and when people will be tired of accusing religion of this and that, and will be interested again in the facts, they go back to these texts. We will know much more about this archaic religion than then through the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides about the Greek world, you know. And uh, my theory is a result of the reading of these English anthropologists. Really, I think you can unify the whole thing. Make sense out of it, literally. And find behind it the same phenomenon, which is always interpreted a little bit differently, but always turned into a religion. That vict- this victim is not really dead since he saved us. After destroying us, halfway, he saved us. He brought us peace. And peace becomes so important in that crisis that you worship whoever brings it to you, which is, there, the most violent, supposedly, creature. Well, some cultures will precisely do that, keep the victim alive for a long time. Nevertheless, the killing of the victim is absolutely essential, because it satisfies the appetite for violence of the initial crime. But uh, indeed, some communities ultimately can keep the victim alive forever. You know, French kings, if you look behind it, there is a little bit of a a whiff of sacred monarchy. But, of course, if you look at Louis XIV, Louis XV, no hint of sacred monarchy. But go and look at the trial of the king and of the queen. The queen was accused of incest with her son. If you look at the trial of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, you find all the archaic accusations. And it was a cloud phenomenon, ultimately. A huge one. So you can read the French Revolution in terms which are not the same, of course. But where you see aspects of these archaic realities which reappear quite suddenly. Inevitably, we live in a world which, from the point of view of this phenomenon I'm talking about, is completely imperfect. We live in a globalized world. Therefore, many different communities with different interests interpenetrate interpenetrate each other. If you go back to archaic communities, you go back to communities which we can assume were pretty much isolated and were experiencing certain things all by themselves. Today, there are constant interferences with outside. Therefore, you cannot theorize it. You know that you're dealing with the same phenomena which have evolved in a certain way, but which are not, quote-unquote, I would say, perfect, in the sense that you can see them operating in certain myth. So you can say there are mythical aspects to everything, but usually... If you start talking about them, you will want to use them for one side against the other, which means that you're necessarily going to distort them, because you're going to interpret them according to your own views. I feel you you don't have any more tests of objectivity. You can have judgments, you know, for lots of reasons, because uh, not all violence is the same. In most archaic communities, probably there were no minorities. But there may have been uh, in larger societies and so forth. But anyway, you won't find a trace of a religious minority in a myth, even if there is one. But you find something else which is a proof of scapegoating. You You know yourself that mythical heroes or witches in the villages very often have physical defects. Oedipus' limbs, uh, which is uh, maybe representative, represented too as be very ugly. And if you look at Greek gods, for instance, well, Hephaestus limbs too, but some are hunchback, some are one-eyed, Wotan, the great Germanic god. Anyway, the number of gods who have a physical defect is enormous. And I say this is one more argument to think that my thesis is true. Why? Because if you take a very primitive crowd, and I don't hesitate to use the word primitive, uneducated and so forth, it will tend to move against victims which are easy to spot, which have some physical defect or something which makes them noticeable. And probably, in terms of evolutionary theory, it links with predation. You know, we know that great predators, people say, oh, they pick in the flock the animal who is the slowest and so forth. It's not really true. They end up picking the animal who doesn't run as well as the other. But it's because there is a visible defect, because he's smaller than the other one, because he limps sometimes. And therefore, In a mass of zebras, you know, you cannot isolate anything, but if someone is different, one zebra, the lion will rush to this one. And nine times out of ten, it will be a good choice because there is a physical defect. And if you look at Greek heroes, but also primitive heroes all over the place, the thing which is amazing about myth is that you have features which are universal worldwide. You see, the hero that lives is all over the world. So we cannot say that it's something ethnic, something cultural, it's everywhere. And it makes me feel that it's an objective thing. I'm a realist, you know. I think that texts talk about reality, real events. And if a text tells you that so many people live, you know, there must be a reason. Or many mythical heroes are twins. Why? Because twins fight all the time, or supposed to. And they kill each other. Cain and Abel are not far from that. Romulus and Remus are two twin brothers. And no Roman would dream of regarding Remus as the good guy the good man is Romulus, who is the first priest, the first king, the first lawgiver of Rome. And we accept that, all of us. And we look at Remus, you know, as the bad transgressor who crossed the line, you know, a near line in the sand that is brotherhood. But the Bible chooses Adam against Cain. Already there, the victim is right. So, in and neighbor, if people tell you it's the same thing as Romulus and weavers, tell them not true at all. The Bible is for the victim right there. And tells you the murderer is wrong. What did you do with your brother? No myth will ever tell you that. It's absolutely essential. It's a whole difference of the world. All our civil rights come from there. I don't want to privilege absolutely the Bible because uh, if you take the evolution of Indian religion, the Indians are the most incredible scriptural text. Everything I say about sacrifice, they say it. Because they don't have myth only. They have commentaries and explanations of myth, which are still within the orbit, of course, of Vedic thinking but they tell you about the rivalry before. They tell you about the victim as a solution to the violence. They tell you everything. You see? But when you get to the period of the great Jewish prophets, you have the Vedanta, you know, and this great text that the Upanishad are. There are so many of them that we haven't translated them all. And in the Upanishad, you find an anti-sacrificial thrust, where sacrifice is regarded as murder and rejected. Later, Hinduism went back to sacrifice. But you have a period which is very analogous to the Jewish prophets. And great text, they don't give up the word sacrifice, but they say sacrifice should be purely interior. And very often, they have funny stories you know, about the demons being behind sacrifice and the gods trying to stop it. The demons exploiting man and so on. Therefore, uh, this anti-sacrificial thing is present in the... And, and uh, Buddhism is the same thing in the sense that Buddhism comes entirely from the Indian tradition. But it separated itself. Whereas the Upanishad are in a continuity with the great uh, Indian tradition. You know that Buddhism is against sacrifice. You know for sure. At the same time, one has to recognize that Buddhism on the territory where it dominates has not eliminated earlier forms of sacrifice to the same extent that Christianity has. Neither has Islam. Islam remains compatible with certain forms of animal sacrifice, which are acknowledged. Christianity, no, and Judaism, of course, and the sacrifices ended with the end of the Second Temple. I talked about witchcraft trials a little while back, and I said witchcraft trials are not the same thing as myth, since we don't believe in them. We managed to turn it against Christianity. We say, oh, Christianity was so primitive and savage, you know, that it favored witchcraft trial, which is absolutely untrue. There were some popular orders, you know, like uh, the Franciscans in certain places that had certain complicities as well. But the church as a whole in the religious was against these things. As a matter of fact, it's a very funny thing. We have a letter of the Grand Inquisitor of Spain in the year 1600 against witch hunting in the name of rationalism. I, it's in some anthology about religious texts in this country. It's not often quoted, but it's very funny in view of the, showing the complexity of these things, you know, instead of a simple attitudes. Uh, but uh, why don't we believe in witchcraft trials? Why don't we believe in the drivers? In my view, even though we are not able to conceptualize what I've been talking about, the conceptualization is very insignificant. It's the last What is important is the deep emotional attitude towards victims. We have a unique attitude towards victims. We don't realize that. You know we say, "Oh, we are so bad, so violent. We are the only society of the world which has ever been worried about its own violence. You can go back to any society in the past. There is no society that ever worried about violence, especially its own. It was regarded as one of these facts of life about which you cannot do anything. So we are constantly accusing ourselves as if there were better societies before that we could give us examples of nonviolence compared to us. You know, and Voltaire, the Enlightenment, believed that so much that when he wrote Candide, he decided to have a counterexample. And there is no doubt that he must have looked for some place that he could use, and he decided there was none, and he invented a false one, his El Dorado, which is a middle. You know, the place without violence, because Voltaire was the first one to have that attitude toward violence, which we have which is everybody is responsible for violence, except me, except us, very often. You see, people before didn't have, they talked in terms of evil, but not of some kind of objective violence. What does violence mean objectively? We cannot define it. I don't think we should try. It's always a relationship. But the modern world has a very special attitude. Someone owes us absolute peace, plus comfort, money, computers, and everything else. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be working quite right at this present moment, you know. And people are having second thoughts about uh, enlightenment optimism. And all I want to do is to uh, increase a little bit these this doubts in, Thank you very much. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word.org. Thank you for your interest in our work.